It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com. Are you struggling personally or professionally because of the coronavirus shutdown? Ready to grow your business and serve more customers and clients? Finally, there's a trustworthy website with resources, relief options, grants, support, and much more for small businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. One location with all the information. It's time to get back to work, life, and reopen America. Visit ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com today. The ultimate resource platform to help you in every way. This is Everything Home, the transformational show about life, laughter, and the pursuit of happiness delivered by good people doing good business and good things. Let's take the word freedom. Wouldn't it be great to have more professional freedom, personal freedom, and how about financial freedom? Every week, Michelle Swinnick, the queen of quality content, interviews experts, entrepreneurs, professionals, and purpose-driven people to share their stories, their passions, and provide real-life, tangible takeaways. Get ready to be entertained, yet learn some incredible information. This is Everything Home, and this is Michelle Swinnick. Today's topic, success tips for business and life from family business queen, Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi Perdue is an entrepreneur, author, public speaker, and the queen of family business. She founded Series Farms in 1974, which is now one of the larger producers of wine grapes in California. If you've ever tasted wine from Kendall Jackson, Mondavi, Gallo, Toasted Head, or any of almost a dozen wineries, you may have had wine from the grapes grown on her farms. Her last name should sound familiar, too. Her husband, Frank Purdue, grew the Purdue Chicken Company from no employees to 20,000. And Mitzi's father was the president and co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain. She'll be sharing success tips for both business and life that you won't learn in any school or read about in any books. These are timeless secrets that you can use right now. And boy, do we need them more than ever. Before we discuss today's topic, success tips for business and life from family business queen, Mitzi Perdue, I wanted to tell you about our new website, reopenamericaresourcecenter.com. It's the ultimate resource platform to help you personally and professionally navigate through our new world, get back to work, grow your business, improve your life, and reopen America. It has resources, relief options, grants, and support for small businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. Every single person can benefit from something on this website. Job listings, online tools, products, services, offers, information, facts, data, expert advice, business organizations, networking groups, virtual concerts and events, and so much more. Mitzi Purdue's new book, How to Be Up in Down Times, which she co-authored with Mark Victor Hansen, is available for purchase on our author's page, and 2% of the total purchase price is donated to nonprofits supporting vets, pets, and kids. Now, there's one trustworthy worthy location with all the information, giving you the opportunity to have more personal, professional, and financial freedom. Isn't that what life's all about? ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com. Please check it out. Tell your friends so more people, small businesses, and nonprofits can be helped and we can get this amazing country back on track. And now on with the show. I was just going to say it's a joy to be on with you. I appreciate your coming on, and I know that you're going to also be able to give us some inspirational, entertaining, and hopefully a few juicy stories, because once people Google your name and start to see all of the different life experiences you had, and especially then listening to this show, they're going to say, just as I did, when I'd gotten your email and I looked and I went, oh my, the stories that you must have that are completely, oh, I don't know, behind the scenes, whether it's business or just some 
juicy social stories. I said, this woman <laughs> has got to be full of some juicy stuff. So she is coming on the show. I mean, obviously we want to make sure that people have a bunch of takeaways, but we want to give them some juice too, because there's nothing like a little scoop to make it entertaining for the day. So we're going to do some success tips, business life, Mitzi Perdue, the family business queen. Thank you so much for coming on. And is there anything that you want to share with the audience about you personally before we start going into really dissecting all of the different experiences and endeavors that you have that you do because the resume is just so impressive and it's extremely long. (laughs) Well, first of all, I love the title that you just gave me, a family business queen. I'm not aware of anybody else giving me that, but I gobble it up. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I looked around and I was going through to like, I did my research and I said, you know, for how come no one said this? I said, well, you know what? I'm giving it to her. Yeah. And she needs to put that crown on because what I want people to understand real quick is the two family businesses that you were involved in are dynasties. Okay. Because they were created by men who are not only pioneers in their category, but the type of company. I mean, these type of business models, meaning the Sheraton hotel chain and the Purdue chicken and the Purdue farms, they hadn't been created yet. None of this stuff had been invented. It's not like they just came out with a better hotel chain or a better manufacturing distribution food company. It wasn't invented. So you being on the inside of this, the incredible perspective that you have from being not just someone who worked there, but a daughter and a wife. So, I mean, you were able to watch both men do all of these things. You were able to ask them questions in real time about decisions, the philosophy. But like I said, it wasn't from an employee standpoint. It was from a daughter standpoint and also from a wife, which I mean, anyone who has been in anything like that, they couldn't relate and go, oh my God, the information that this woman has and has seen and been a part of is just, it's literally mind blowing. So is there anything that you want to say about that before we start going in? Or like I said before about yourself, because I, I kind of jumped in there, but I just wanted to kind of set the, the groundwork for the audience so that they can really get their arms around the value and the content and the information that you can provide for people who just want to listen. Well, in truth, I'd love to jump in and tell this somewhat unlikely story of how my late father, Ernest Henderson, went from no employees during the Great Depression to 20,000 at the time of his passing in the late 60s. And, yeah, this is something that didn't drop in his lap. But, you know, as a child, I was very aware that my daddy was a really successful guy. I mean, we our summer home had a ballroom that held 200 people. So even as a child, it was as clear as possible to me that, that my daddy was a really successful guy. So even from childhood, I began asking him, why did you do this? How did you do that? And I want to share with with our audience a story that he told me that I'm hoping would be useful to people today. Because the story I'm about to share with you, we're going to go back to the 1930s, the height of the Great Depression, 25% unemployment. And it was a really, really down time, somewhat like today. And you know, my dearest hope is that the story I'm about to share with everyone could be useful to people today. And it begins with you know, my asking him, how did you do it? How did you build this great, big, successful company? And he told me that whenever he'd take over a hotel, and we're talking the Great Depression now, 1930s, 25% unemployment, he told me that whenever he'd take over a hotel, it would usually be because the hotel was in bankruptcy. And in fact, almost nobody back then was willing to buy a hotel because who had the money to stay at a hotel? Owning a hotel at that time was perceived as a one-way ticket to bankruptcy. Hmm. So how did Father Dare get into hotels when everybody was running away from it? And here's the story. He told me that the day that he'd take over a hotel, he'd invite all the employees to come into the ballroom of the hotel, and there might be 400, 800 people because there are a lot of behind-the-scenes people at a hotel. And, you know, he'd be standing on the stage of the ballroom and looking out over, let's say, 400 people. And he was perfectly aware that every single person there was 
demoralized, probably afraid of being fired. And if you were fired back then with 25% unemployment, you were not going to get employed someplace else. It meant the bread line. So the first words out of his mouth were, I want every one of you here to keep your job. And I want you to keep your job because nobody knows your job better than you do. Nobody knows this hotel better than the people in this room do. So I want you to stay here. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. Imagine how that must have made the employees feel that, you know, that the new owner believes in them and wants to help them show the world just how good they are. But that's the beginning of the story. The next part of the story is the next day, the employees would see troops of like carpenters, electricians, decorators coming into the hotel to refurbish it because if a hotel's gone bankrupt, you have to fix it up. But what the employees would see was these troops of people who were refurbishing the hotel, they would go to the areas that the public would never see, like the employee dining rooms, the employee lockers, showers, the rickety old elevators. They were fixing up the part where the employees worked. So I asked my father, why did you always focus first on the places that the paying public would never see? And his answer was that he wanted to communicate to the people he was working with how important they were to him. And the best, you know, most concrete way of doing this was spending the first money on them. And he said, people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations of them. And this was a concrete way of showing to the people who worked with him how important they were. And that sparked a second question for me, which is, Daddy, why did you promise everybody that they could keep their jobs? Maybe you needed to get rid of dead wood or something. And his answer was, what I'm about to share with you is, I think maybe the most useful thing that I can give everybody, the most useful kind of inside story. He told me that when you want to have people do what you want them to do. He said in his world, there were three ways you could do that. You could do it through intimidation. He could have stood up there in front of his audience and said, shape up or you're fired. But he said, you could get some compliance that way. People, you know, they might shape up, but they'd do it grudgingly. They'd do, you know, the least they could get by with because there would be intimidation creates resentment. He said possibility number two. He could have tried bribery. He could have stood up in front of them that first day. He could have looked out over the audience and he could have said, do a great job and there's a raise in it for you. Do a super job and there's a bonus for you. But he told me, no, that's not a good way either. Because bribery, you always have to keep up in the ante. And on top of that, what's really wrong with bribery is it's too transactional. People will work for the bribe, but father was after something bigger. He said the third way in his world of getting people to do what you want is inspiration. His phrase was inspire, don't require. And he hmm. said his job was, the way he viewed it, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. And he wanted people to feel that they weren't just, you know, the, the waitress wasn't waiting on table, the, the maid who's making the bed, she isn't just making beds, the bartender isn't just bartending. No, they're working as a team to make it the best hotel in the whole city. They're working as a team to make it an inspiration to other places in the city to show that you could turn things around. And he said, with that attitude, people will go the extra mile They'll make the place a success. And so the biggest, I don't know, kind of tip that I can share with people is skip bribery, skip intimidation, go straight to inspiration. Well, it's interesting is his ideology and his philosophy was 
not typical back then. I mean, it sounds like most of the time it was intimidation and it wasn't really inspiring the employees, right? I mean, is that is that accurate that he was a pioneer not only in his business modeling, but how he treated the employees and maybe that set some precedent so that companies and corporations had a different approach where they just realized that that's why he was successful. Well, I'm, I'm his daughter, so of course I'm prejudiced as I'll get out. But <laughs> as far as I can see, he simply changed the way, at least in the hotel industry, the way people treated people because he was able to turn failing hotels around into startling successes. Because he started with one hotel, made a success of it with the money from that bought another until by the end of his career, he had 400. I think there's a reason why he was able to see more into what motivates people than the people that, than his competitors. And it goes back to the fact that father, what was his biggest deficit became his, his biggest asset because 10 years before the story that I just told you about when he was taking over a hotel, how he did it, Ten years before that, he had just gotten engaged to my mother, and he had, how about a really rude awakening, which is my mother had come from West Virginia to Boston to meet her future in-laws, and Grandmother Berta told my mother, don't marry Ernest, you'll end up poor. He can never (laughs) stick to anything. (laughs) And, you know, he said he's just not good marriage material, and that's, that's father's own mother. Oh, that was his mother. (laughs) That's even better. I thought it was her mother, but it's his mother. (laughs) His mother. Oh, that's great. So, so, yeah, this is a rude awakening for father. And he thinks, okay, I've I've got to make some changes. So out of the phone book, he found the Johnson O'Connor guidance counselors, career guidance counselors. And he spent a whole day learning you know, why it was that he hadn't been able to have any kind of success and probably wouldn't be a good breadwinner. And Johnson O'Connor said, in my entire career of counseling people, I have never come across somebody whose skills at human relations were so terrible. I mean, you're, you're the worst. And <laughs> you're said, the worst. <laughs> yeah. He told him he's the worst, though. <laughs> yeah. And so he said, you know, you're clearly a a bright guy. I think that you could make a career as a bench scientist working in the laboratory and not interacting with anybody. (laughs) Well, father, yeah, I think father could have been horribly discouraged by this and ended up with a totally different career. But instead, father took it as a challenge. He analyzed that if he wanted to get anywhere in life, you had to understand what makes people tick. You have to have the ability to figure out what motivates them. And he began an absolute lifetime journey of studying what motivates people, what makes them tick, how, how you can influence them, how you can get compliance for, for what you want. And he began taking psychology courses, reading psychology books, taking classes, attending lectures. He took the Dale Carnegie How to Win Friends and Influence People course. I mean, he just, he spent the rest of his life trying to understand people. And in the end, I think, well, I'm I'm going to withdraw the word, I think. He was so successful that I'm going to guess that there are few people, how about on the planet, who interacted more successfully with more people Maybe a national politician interacts with more people more successfully, but as the owner of 400 hotels, where he was constantly traveling, constantly interacting with the people who worked with him, with the traveling public, with the press, I mean, he had to make enormous use of his studying of what motivates people and what makes them tick. And the proof is in the pudding. His greatest deficit that he was he didn't understand people became his greatest asset because he did learn to understand people. And it was that kind of 
like fresh thinking that enabled him to stand up in front of a group of new employees and tell them, I believe in you. I want you to keep your job. I want to make it possible for you to show the world just how good you are. But I don't think he would have gotten to that point if he hadn't come at it completely fresh from somebody who knew that his ability to relate to people sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. It's actually encouraging for people to hear that you could take something that you know you're not necessarily good at. And if you really want to change, if you want to learn and you want to solve that problem, it's possible. And let's just say this, back then, we obviously know we didn't have the internet, we didn't have all the tools, we didn't have the resources. So if your dad can do it, and it sounds like it was just some courses which you actually have to go to, it's not like he did it online, and it was books that he'd actually had to read where it's not nowadays where you can go ahead and even do the audio version because you don't want to pick up the book because it's too much effort. There's, the, there's even more tools now to, to be able to accomplish, obviously not all the things he can, but overcome something that is preventing people from moving forward if they really want to. So it's all about what do you really want? What do you want out of life? What do you want out of your business? Because you can, you can do a 180. Your, your father proved it. Yeah, he sure did. It was as 180 as can be. And, you know, I have, I have a conflict right now in recommending that people sit into their greatest asset because I'm a deep believer in, you've heard of the book Strengths Finders where you take a whole lot of questions and you find out what you're really good at and then build on your strengths. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm, I'm in favor of people building on their strengths. But on the other hand, in father's case, he wanted to be a success. He wanted to be a good provider for his new fiance. He wanted to kind of undo what his mother had predicted that he was going to end up poor. So he was really motivated to be a success. And he figured that being a success, the magic key was ability to get along with people. And so I mentioned that he, that he took courses and read books, but you know, something else that he did, I grew up with having famous psychologists and psychiatrists being weekend guests. I mean, people Mm -hmm. that, they're not that famous now, but Eddie Bernays was, I think he's known as the father of modern advertising. You know, he was a frequent guest. B.F. Skinner, who was a famous psychology professor at Harvard, he would be a weekend guest. I mean, father just cultivated any possible way that he could learn more about what made human beings tick. And then he put it into action. And, it wasn't a kind of passive thing. I remember both he and my mother used to read How to Win Friends and Influence People every 10 years because they felt that you know, with it, they didn't want to forget even one part of it because they felt it was so essential to getting along in the world. I, I mentioned that I had a conflict of is it better to build on your strengths or overcome your weaknesses? And I think in general, build on your strengths unless your weakness is the thing that's going to hold you back. And Father did analyze that if he had terrible human relations skills, that he better, he better deal with that and, and did. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But focus on what you're good at, but the hope of being able to turn something around that you know that you have, that you have an issue with that you're not good at, but you need those particular skills, it can be done. So that's, I think that would be the takeaway for people to just be rest assured or have that in inspiration, that incentive, that that, that is something that can be done. Don't think that just because you're not good at it now or like your dad, you said he sucked at it, you can change that. So there's hope and there's a light at the end of the tunnel for that. On a personal note, Mitzi, I mean, look at the family you grew up in. Look at the success of your dad. Two parts to the question. One, were you involved in work at his company at any point? And two, how did you find your own personal identity out of that and go be successful in your own world and separating that or with thinking that, God, I, I don't want to, I get a good job or I start my own company. I don't want people to think that I did it or I was, I got the job because of my dad or I am successful because he gave me the seed money to start the company. I mean, how did you personally kind of adjust to that and then? The first part of that question, did you work at the, at the Sheraton Hotel complex? Yeah. 
I did work on it briefly. My first job at age 15 was as a file clerk, and I was filing credit cards. And it's, to my mind or from my personality, it was the most boring job in the whole world, but it was a wonderful job that he gave me because it taught me, but I didn't want a boring job. And I'd been a kind of average student. But then when I thought, good Lord, if, if, if I don't do well and I can't get into college, I may have a job that I'd hate. And so I, I went from being like a C student to an A student. because I was <laughs> infinitely motivated not to have a job that, would, that I would hate. So, yes, I did work for the company. And it was kind of difficult because I'm going to guess that there were 25 other people in filing credit cards. And it was so clear to me that I couldn't be, imagine air quotes, one of us. I, I couldn't be one of us with them. There was no way of being close because, you know, I was the big boss's daughter. Mm-hmm. And that, that had a huge influence for me for the rest of my life because I remember feeling just so like when, when people are slightly afraid of you because of your position, it's very isolating. And at age 15, I was miserable. I wanted to be one of us. I wanted to hang out and joke, and it didn't happen. And so for the rest of my life, I, it's, it's given me a great sympathy for people who are kind of not one of us. Like if, if I'm at a, let's say I'm at a charity event, and there are 500 people in the room, and I see somebody on the side who's not talking with anybody, well, I'll make a beeline for that person and talk with them because I know what it's like to be on the outside and you know, just not, not joining in and having fun. So, yeah, I learned a lot from that. And then the, the question you asked about how did I cope with having an identity of my own when I had a father who employed 20,000 people? I don't think I handled it well. For the first probably after finishing college for possibly the first 25 years or so, I did everything I could to hide my background and to not take advantage of it. And like to my undying shame, I remember I was a management intern at the Treasury Department. And I'd been a government major, so I wanted a job in government. So I'm a management intern. There are 20 other management interns. And I kept as secret as I could what my background was because I wanted to be one of us. And you know, life was rolling along. Everything was great. But then there was an article in Time magazine, and we're talking 1962 at this point, there was an article about my father and how he was worth $400 million back then. Mm. And, you know, he had the same name as I did. And, okay, the shameful part is that my fellow interns were saying, gosh, that's your father? And I was so embarrassed by it that I lied. I said, no, we have the same name, but, and I'm embarrassed about that because if, if I could have a do-over, I, I would have told the truth. I'm embarrassed that, that I felt that I had to lie. I, mean, I wouldn't, if I had a do-over, trust me, I would have been as honest as I could always. Then, you know, kind of later on in life, I deliberately selected jobs where having a famous last name would be of no help to me of any sort. I became a newspaper writer. My column went to 420 newspapers, and I got that job. And this part I'm proud of by being the best writer I could be. And I don't think anybody could influence 420 newspapers to pick you up if if you're not good. I also got a job in television. It was syndicated to 76 stations. And again, my father was dead at this point, but I was really proud of, of having done it in my own. So radio, television, newspaper, and writing were all things that I could say, you know, if I'm not good, I'm not going to get this job. So, yes, I'm proud of that. But, again, if I had a do-over, I wouldn't have put so much effort into hiding my background. Today, I don't hide it, and I'm proud of it. And, you know, take me as I am. This is who I am, and I'm not going to put on a mask of pretending to be somebody different. Well, good for you, and you should be. You should be proud of it. What a long answer I gave you to your your simple question. (laughs) What you provided and what you shared, there's a lot of meaning in it that a lot of people can actually relate to. And it might actually make them understand how some people that they know or interact with or judge based on their behavior, why they're doing it. I mean, 
you're almost like a dream client for a psychologist because so many of the things that have transpired in your life, they can analyze it and your you know, the experience then counteracted or it actually made you have a certain action, which then this is you were you were doing one thing and then all of a sudden the reasons why you went to you know, another extreme was to counteract or to compensate for something else. And I just with a couple stories you shared, I mean, I think a lot of people can maybe, like I said, understand other people a little bit better or themselves. But as far as celebrating somebody's family or where they came from or utilizing that to their advantage to move forward in life, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, they always talk about nepotism and, you know, I can understand people want to do things on their own, but if you have those tools, go ahead and use them in a proactive, constructive way. And if it opened a door for you, great, but you're not going to be in that position if you can't handle it. The door might be open because of context or for who, who you are and where you came from, but whether or not they throw you out that door after six months or a year because you can't perform, that's up to you. So, you know, that wouldn't that be something that you would give as advice to people is to, you know, use it as a tool, any of that type of, whether it's money or influence, use it as a tool. And if your intentions are good and you're good at what you do, it's going to all work out regardless of how you got started. You know, you, you bring up questions that are so like central to, to my view of life. And first of all, I totally agree with you because the me at age 20, 30 and 40, I would not take the same course. And the reason why, you know, back then I, I felt I wanted to do it on my own. The way I look at it today, and I'm 79 and proud of it, at my age today, and how about for the last 20 or 30 years, my attitude has changed from wanting to hide my background to thinking, good Lord, I've been dealt some aces. And mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous and stupid not to make use of the aces. And then... But that gets to a still deeper question of what are we here for? And I have a particular, I mean, it's my motivation. I would like to increase happiness and decrease misery. And if I'm not making use of all the gifts that, that I didn't deserve, I was just lucky enough to be born into the family I was born into, the, the bigger stage that you can use influence on for good, I think the better and from that point of view, I would endorse anybody using all the aces that they've been dealt. And if you haven't been dealt aces, make them. Oh, that's good. That is good. I'm writing that down. Can I share something else? Well, there was a deficit that I had, which was terror of public speaking. And the terror of public speaking yeah, was an odd terror for me who makes my living right now doing public speaking and communicating. A lot of it came from the fact that I had a fairly severe lisp up until age 34. And that made me very shy because, you know, people, when I get to know them well, sometimes would even tell me that when they first met me, they thought that I was stupid because if you've got a bad enough lisp, you not only hear it, you see it. And it, you know, it's a problem. Well, so somewhere around age 34, I determined that I wanted to overcome my fear of public speaking. I mean, because it was blighting my life. That meant getting rid of a lisp. So I went to a speech therapist and I said, hey, cure my lisp. Well, we're talking probably mm, 1975 back then. And in 1975, I'm assuming this speech therapy has made all sorts of progress since then. But in 1975, the speech therapist told me, nope, at your age, can't be done. We cannot help you. Well, I really, really, really wanted to overcome my, my terror of meeting people and my fear of public speaking. And so I went to another speech therapist and said, hey, you know, one, one speech therapist said they couldn't do it, but could you? And she said, nope, too late. Would like to get you while you're still like under 10. So I went to a third speech therapist. And this one, her office was like a two-hour round trip from where I was living in California. 
And she told me the same thing. Nope, can't be done. However, I'd love to take your money if, you, if you're going to insist on wanting to come. Sure, come and I'll take your money, but it probably won't do any good. And for nine months, she was right. For nine months, I couldn't hear the difference. I couldn't feel the difference. There was just no progress of any sort. But then, somewhere like nine months and a couple of weeks, I began to hear the difference, and then I began to be able to form it, form the, the proper S. And by a year, I was done with the lisp. And the effort that, that it cost me to get to that point you know, I wasn't about to just turn my back on it, so I began auditioning for a television show, a radio show, public speaking, and my career just exploded after that. Hmm. Interesting. So it was because you were so determined, and whether the experts told you, no, you can't, we can't help you, was it you think you decided, yes, I'm going to just go for it with some of the tools you gave me and I'm going to make it happen because I need to. And regardless of what they said, so it doesn't necessarily matter if an expert tells you no. <laughs> so what they're <laughs> who made them the expert, right? Cause they've got a degree in something, you know, it's personal determination well, actually, is, is kind of what I'm getting from all of these stories that is really what, what drove you and what can make a difference in other people's lives too. It's really, what do you want and how badly do you want it? Would you say that? Yeah I, guess, yeah, I guess it's how badly you want it. Because, you know, in, in the case of my father, his career was, how about a catastrophe until he addressed his biggest deficit. And I think, I mean, I suppose I had a whole host of other deficits, but this was the great, big, obvious one that I had to get past. And, you know, I've since wondered, looking back in my life, where did I get the courage to to go to three different therapists and, and you know, I've, I'm not sure, you know, how did I reach in so deep to not get discouraged? And I don't know the answer other than I had kind of a vision of if I could get this past this, my life would change. And so I just kept at it. Yeah. It's almost like you realize, I don't know how I'm going to get over it. I don't really care how it happens. I know that I need to get to point B and this roadblock is there. So I'm just going to, <laughs> I'm going to move it at whatever cost it takes so I can get to the end of the road. Well, you know, you just did it. That, well, interesting that you use the word roadblock because I have an inner, inner image of myself. Sure. A steamroller, the kind that like there's asphalt and the steamroller sets the asphalt. My image of myself is I'm a steamroller that, there, there may be obstacles, but this steamroller is just going to go over them. And so I guess my image of myself helps. Well, I, I visualization, mean, really, right? Visual, yeah, you I, visualize it, and then that you start living that life, and then that's the way you think, and you, you, you act that way, you think that way, you talk that way, and it becomes true. It becomes your world. You know, your story and other stories prove that. Your dad his theory, the way that he changed things, he proved it. So, you know, all these things that everybody reads or hears, it's true. You just, <laughs> it's almost like then we wonder why we're not moving forward, why we're not being successful, why we're not living the life we want, why we're not in the successful business venture that we want to be in. And it goes, like you said, goes back to how badly do you want it? You have to start really living it and doing it, asking maybe why or what it is that you really want, define it, and then go for it. The tools are there, you know, and it's, it's most of it's in your brain. How badly do you want it? We all have the ability to do it. Sometimes well, you, you know, have to take that think, first step. Yeah, but it makes me think of something that I read, a quote from Henry Ford. If you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're absolutely right. So I'm a huge believer in, in visualization, in just, you know, nothing's going to stop me. I will do this. That, you know, that, that almost brings up a bigger question. Where do you get the, the feeling nothing's going to stop me? I have a theory, and that is, and this has an awful lot to do with why I'm forever reading self-help books, but the theory is 
that is another is inspiration because inspiration gives you the energy and the direction to move forward. So I love self-help books and for that matter, podcasts that are inspirational because they give us the energy and the direction to move forward and along the way to move past obstacles. And it's interesting that you say that because earlier when you were talking about your dad, his whole philosophy was inspire, don't require. And a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves, which is inspiration. So, yeah, you know, I've never put those two together, but yes, yes. And yes. Yeah. So you are your father's daughter. <laughs> that <laughs> apple does not fall far from the tree. So <laughs> can we talk chicken? Can we Please. go into phase two? Purdue Farms, Frank Purdue, Tough Man, Tender Chicken. We first emailed when I read that you were Purdue as in chicken. I grew up on Frank Purdue chicken and Frank Purdue commercials because I grew up in New Jersey. So the only chicken that I had known of was Frank Purdue. And I remember the commercials. And then I, I, then I even remember when his son started doing the commercials. Yeah. So I went, yeah, just for chicken. How did you guys meet? And when you did meet, what phase was the company in? Then, gosh, the, the stories you can share from that, but at least get people kind of a starting point. Okay. Well, we met in 1988, and we met at a party in Washington, D.C. I was living in California. He was living in Salisbury, Maryland, but we overlapped for 10 minutes because he arrived late, and I had to leave early. So we, we only overlapped for 10 minutes, but it took the first five minutes were spent. We, we each knew that the other was divorced. And the first five minutes were spent talking about how neither of us would ever marry again because we thought it was an institution designed to make people miserable. <laughs> but then, you know, after talking a little bit further, we decided or we discussed that it was unfortunate that we'd never remarry because that meant growing old alone. But that was our fate because both of us felt that we could never trust anybody again. And then Frank looked down at me and I looked up at him and he said, I believe I could trust you. And I'm looking at his face and I say, I believe I could trust you. And the next five minutes were spent talking about what our marriage would be like. It would be supportive and not competitive and would be there for each other when the times were good and when the times were bad. And that's just how it turned out. We had 17 years and until his passing. And I felt there was no adjustment period. I felt that he was just the easiest person to get along with in the world. And I admired him endlessly. And it was just a joyous marriage. And by the way, when we married, we had known each other six weeks and three days. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes when you know, you know, but it's not like you hadn't been there and done that before. And it's not like you were 18 and didn't know anything about life in the real world. So if that's what you both decided, I have a feeling there was a reason for it. And obviously 17 years. So what? It was only, you've only known each other for six weeks. You know, <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> you don't have to go no, through I, I, the length. You know what I mean? It's not like you, you didn't know exactly what you wanted and it wasn't influenced by power or money because you, you already had that on your own. So it wasn't like, you know what I mean? And he wasn't the same where he was like, oh, I got to be careful with this lady. She's looking at my pocketbook. No, she's got her own. So it's okay. You can actually just be yourselves and see if you really can get along and like each other. So it took a lot of the, but, the things out of the normal conversation. Right. But, you know, there, there's something else that I need to augment in what I said. When we married, we had known each other in person six weeks and three days. But we met at the end of February. We married in July. And we spent an hour to two hours every single day talking by telephone. Because I was living in California. He was in Maryland. And so... We actually did know each other pretty well because when you talk by telephone and we each had a commitment to being totally honest, you, you really can't.
can get to know a person pretty well, even if it's not in person. Very but, true. But I'm, Very true. But I'm also going to agree with you that I was 47 and he was 68. And you know, by, by, by that age, you kind of know who you are and what you want in a relationship. And, oh, I mean, it was the happiest time of my life without competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you, at that point, you probably didn't even play an active role in the Purdue company. I mean, you, you or did you? Was there, there's some, was there something there that you did, or is it just separate? You were truly just married to him and no interactions with the company. The, the answer to that is a clear-cut yes and no. Yeah, I should have rephrased the question. You're involved because you're the wife, but you don't have a job title at the company. I didn't have a job title at the company. I mean, because not not a chance. They, I mean, there are people who spent their lives and had their expertise. But I did have one area that was just, it didn't give me a job title, but it was very satisfying. And, well, here's what happened. You for this story to make sense, remember, I grew up in the hospitality industry, and in the hospitality industry, you're just groomed to think that having people get along with each other and have fun, you know, being hospitable was a huge value. Well, when Frank and I first got back from our honeymoon, I suggested to him that we ought to entertain every single person who worked for the company. And, you know, his initial act reaction to that was that, you know, what planet did she send, set down from? <laughs> but, and I also said that we ought to have a hundred at a time. And he said, no, that's way too many. And I said, we should start in September. That being like, I don't know, six or eight weeks from then. <laughs> and, you know, his initial reaction to all of this was no, 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 and no. But as we discussed it further, you know, he began to think, eh, maybe there's something to this. And then finally he said, you know what? I like it. And mm. I know why he was hesitant. I also know why in the end he ended up liking it. He was hesitant because the idea of having 100 people in our home three weeks out of the month, having 100 people in our home, you know, that just was not part of his comfort zone. But like my father, he was always on the lookout for ways to make people feel important. And he eventually embraced the idea because entertaining everybody was a way of signaling how important they were to him. And beginning in September, we beginning with the set, with the administrative assistants, we began having groups a hundred at a time, and they would include like the truckers, the veterinarians, the sanitation workers, the accountants, the lawyers, everybody. And for seventeen years, that's that's what we did. And Frank loved it because. It was a chance for him to communicate, you know, in a very, very concrete way, you're important to me. And he did something that that I'm going to guess that, that very few heads of Fortune 500 size companies would do. And that is, we had a great big long buffet table in the living room. And, you know, we were inviting people for dinner. And he would stand behind the buffet table, along with a couple of other servers, and he would wait on his employees. What does that mean to somebody who's, let's say, a veterinarian, to have Frank Purdue waiting on him? And then at the end of the evening, he'd stand up in front of his audience, his, the people who worked with him, and he'd tell them what was going on in the company. He'd tell, almost as if they were the board of directors, he'd report on you know, what the obstacles, the difficulties, the the scary things, and it also tell about the triumphs. And so if you're, you know, imagine you're a sanitation worker, you're an accountant, whoever you are, you're hearing from the big boss, the guy whose name appears on your check, you're getting the absolute most inside information on where the company is and how it's doing. And then at the end of the evening, he would look at his audience and he'd tell them, you know, in, in different words each time, but the bottom line would be, I know the company wouldn't be where it is today without you. Thank you. And I, I know that the, that the guests loved it because they'd tell me, but I've even been to funerals where the next of kin would tell me that the most meaningful thing in the deceased's life was being entertained by Frank Perdue in his home. And, you know, 
I want, I want to step back and look at this in kind of a bigger picture thing, which was Frank was very aware of what a psychiatrist from the 1900s said. The guy's name was William James. And he said, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And Frank would deliver that to the people who worked with him. And with, with Frank, the, the saying used to be the same as with my father. If you started working with him, or at least in the case of Purdue, if, if you were there for five years, you were with him for life. Because you felt appreciated and valued and that your contribution really meant something and that you were part of the bigger picture. You were providing healthy, wholesome, inexpensive food to people. You know, it's so interesting that there's so many similarities between your dad and Frank Purdue. They never got a chance to meet, but it sounded like they would have they would have been maybe even business partners at some point. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's why you married him because you're like, God, he reminds me so much of my dad, and I and I respected my dad so much <laughs> that I, I I wanted to marry someone like him, and that happens a lot too. It's definitely the case with me because the the biggest thing that the two had in common was an absolute bedrock set of values, like how about honesty, integrity. You know, just things that I could really look up to and admire. And Frank was remarkably easy to get along with because, you know, if we had a disagreement, I always felt that he totally listened to me and I felt understood and I didn't always get my way, but I always felt that he understood my side. I mean, that he could be an advocate for my side almost. He understood it so well. And, yeah, that that makes it somebody really easy to to live with if they understand you. Yeah, because then you're not really having drastic arguments. You're having a disagreement or there is a dispute. You're not agreeing at that time, but it's not something that can just get downright ugly because the other person still does have an open mind. They might not like your opinion on something, but they can understand where it came from and why you have it and probably you know, make, kind of, well, all yeah, the sense in the world why you, you lasted 17 years and you really didn't have any issues. So good for you guys. Well, as I said, he was he was easy to get along with. I mean, he was he was always fair, and I just respected him so much that I didn't want him to know this because I don't think it's good for marriage for a husband to know that his wife just thinks that he was my hero. But I believe now, in equality in marriage, so so that was not something that I emphasized to him. But nevertheless, I kind of felt it. Yeah, and that's you, you, there's nothing wrong with admiring somebody or thinking that they're amazing. You know, that's part of what, what isn't that what love's all about? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's not supposed yeah. to be what it, what it, what that mean that word means. So, are you involved in the in the Purdue company at all at in this at this point, or it's just when he was no longer here that that what the because you guys were married at the time was there anything you'd like to share about that oh i'll t- i'll talk right now about what my involvement with purdue i i serve in some committees like the centennial committee i get invited and this this is something i just treasure when they're new hires and yeah you know, because i think they employ 21,000 people right now wow. give or take a thousand i mean because well whatever number it is that means that there's very frequently a lot of new hires, and I occasionally have the honor of addressing the new hires and telling them what Frank was like and what his values were and what his vision for the future was. And it's just, for me, a tremendous chance to help perpetuate the identity of where we came from and where we're going. And I'm, I'm really big on the notion that a company's culture is just all important. So to have a chance to contribute to that's wonderful. And then another thing, family members, you know, during the pandemic, I played a role in organizing the following. We, just for the family members to say thank you, we gave all the associates cards to, to Subway so that they could, just, just as, as a thank you. And for, for somebody you know, the the amount wasn't large. It wasn't tiny either. But I, I think the thought of the, that we care matters. It goes a long way. And you, throughout this whole conversation, you've proven that with stories from both your dad and from Frank. That's showing that appreciation makes all the difference in the world because 
there's a lot of hotels out there. And a hotel's a hotel, right? You can you can have the exact same type of furniture, the same look, but it's the experience that people have on the inside. And that's created by the people that work there is what makes the difference. Same thing with the chicken. So let's just say, I know that he had a special ingredient that he was using that kind of put him in front of the rest of the chicken world. But let's just say that the chicken was totally even with another competitor. What, what makes this chicken better? What makes this, the, makes this company have 20,000 or 21,000 employees? It's because of, the, like you said, the culture and the dynamic, the relationships within the company based on how they were, the employees were interacting and being treated by the executives. Your husband was well, actually, constantly inspiring. I, yeah, I'm thinking of, of another story that just reflected who Frank was. I remember once we were having a weekend and it was in, I don't know, West Virginia somewhere at some kind of retreat, a camping kind of retreat. And we got a phone call in floods in North Carolina and that 70 of the Purdue associates had been flooded out. Well, we cut our vacation short, drove right back to Salisbury, Maryland, probably seven or eight hour drive. And Frank arranged for the following he arranged for every one of the 70 associates who had been flooded out to get a check for $1,000 from his money, not from company money. And then on top of that, $100 in cash. And he arranged for Purdue truckers to deliver the $1,000 and the $100 in envelopes for each of the flooded people to get it by Friday evening. And I asked him, what's the $100 about? And he said, well, there's no way we can get it to them faster than Friday and the banks will be closed and they're going to need money like to buy milk or just get through the weekend. So there's cash as well as money that can go in the bank. And yeah, that's a wonderful thing to do. And I admire it at no end. And he just did it from the goodness of his heart. But there's a little bit more to the story, which is I was present when somebody was telling him, you know, you could make all this tax deductible if you give us just a week to get the paperwork right. And it'll cost you half of the $70,000. And Frank said, no, the associates need it right now. They don't need it a week or two from now. They need it now. I don't care about the tax deductions. You know, write the checks, get it in motion. And I loved that this wasn't about getting a tax deduction. This was about helping people that were important to him. Says a lot. Says a lot about his character and his personality. Like you said, his values. So he and sounded way, like he, he was a great, great man. It. Sounded like he yeah, was and he man. never talked about it or boasted about it to anybody. But I know, and I have no problem letting people know what a philanthropic, generous, caring person he was. Well, and that's your job. Your job is to celebrate the person that you love, that you admire, and keep his legacy alive. Share those stories. I mean, if we don't share stories about people that we admire or our life experiences, then why go through them? And why come across people without sharing that information? Because it's interesting. Whether it benefits somebody in a positive way or it helps them do something but just gets through, get them through their day. Doesn't even necessarily have to give them a strategy for a business success or just something inspirational or just a funny story. I mean, that's what that's what we're going through these things in life and the world, so that we can share with other people and do some sort of good, even by just having a story told. You know, you're part of history, Mitzi, because you oh my you gosh. Thought, <laughs> you really you really are. I mean, you know, I, when when we were we were talking about your your dad and and his in his business. Did he ever get a chance to write a book or? Yes. Okay. I wasn't sure because it sounds. I mean, just the couple quotes that you had given. I went, wow. I I hope this guy put something down on paper. I couldn't imagine at his level he didn't. But what what was the name of the book? It's the world of Mr. Sheraton. But that brings me to a topic that again might be useful to our listeners, and that is it might or it might not. But here it is. The Henderson family, we started in 1840 as a business. We're now 180 years old. And we have a family rule that by the time you're 60, you're supposed to write your autobiography. And people do. And so, you know, he wrote his. And it's just the 
best thing when you can read what your ancestors thought and the problems that they went through and how they overcame them. And it's just, I, I recommend to everybody to write your biography and write it, you know, not for ego, although there's nothing wrong with that, but write it for those who come after because, I mean, they can draw lessons from your life and it's a very satisfying thing to do. I can't recommend it strongly enough. I think that's a great, what do you want to call it? Family requirement. <laughs> it's all, it's all like you signed up for it, 60, okay, where's, where's your copy of your book? But it, it, like, like I <laughs> that, said, that, it's part of history. It's, this, it's a person's history, and especially when that person, even other members, I'm sure, of your family, but then that person's so integral in the things that everyone can relate to. And I mean, because of, as I mentioned in the beginning, the type of business that your dad had and created hadn't been created before. It's a new model. It's a new way of doing things. There wasn't a big hotel conglomerate that existed and, nope. and he just decided to start another one. You're talking a whole different way of life, which if you look at us as a country, that set the precedent for how things were going to be established and move forward. And just like True. the chicken, it is a pivotal point in in history for the country and business and how we live our lives and how things are structured. So they created something that hadn't been done before. It's like, you know, you, you've probably seen the movie. Gosh, I can't think of it right now, the name of it, but it's about McDonald's and it was oh, about yeah. Ray Kroc. Okay. And yeah. before, you know, we take nowadays we say, Oh, it's just, you know, drive through or all the things that we have. We, we just kind of, assume or take it for granted it's always been there no there was no such thing as eating out really outside of the home there was no such thing as like a fast food there was such a thing as a drive-through I mean none of that was invented yet so when you come up with these monumental concepts for how business and how the people are going to be getting products and services and goods I mean it's almost like creating the cell phone it, it's just some oh gosh, it, I love it is extremely that impressive. You know what I mean? You just go, you invented something that didn't exist. Yeah, I totally did. <laughs> I don't think father initially intended to start a chain, but I'll tell you how it happened. He got into the hotel business because I guess it was a huge opportunity because hotels were going for pennies on the dollar, and he bought one and was enough of a success using the formula I just described of, of treating people that encouraging people to be all they can be. And with the money, that money, he bought another. But the third hotel that he got from the money that he was making from the first two, and remember height of the Great Depression when nobody's making money, the third one he bought was in Springfield, Massachusetts. And it had something that was just awesome for the time. And that is it had a great big neon sign that said Sheraton. Well, at the time... It had cost $10,000, which I bet you now would be like hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money. And father, as a good New England Yankee, couldn't bear the thought of destroying a $10,000 sign. And he thought, you know, for advertising purposes, I could advertise all three hotels if we had just one name. And, you know, that would be just a very efficient way of doing it. And, and, he also felt that the name Henderson wasn't euphonious. It didn't have a ring to it the way Sheraton did. And so now he has three hotels with one name, Sheraton. And that was pretty much how the Sheraton chain began. And by the way, we did sell it on his death and we invest in other things since then, but we're still a family business together. Totally interesting but story. Totally. I mean, it's just, I, I don't think people can really, like I said, I keep trying to, to just paint the picture of what a big deal all of these pioneers were in regards to creating things that we now just assume always kind of existed and they didn't. And to just be in the mind of somebody who can create something like that is, you got a chance to see it, obviously, because you, you lived with both of them. Just to be able to have a conversation with someone like that would be just an amazing experience for, for someone like myself who just appreciates what they've accomplished 
Yeah, that's why I, I just keep I keep bringing it up. I mean, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I just want I just want to get that impact in people's minds. So we have been having an amazing conversation with Mitzi Purdue, the family business queen. We've provided some success tips for business and life, some good stories. We've been talking about the, the Sheraton Hotel chain and Mr. Frank Purdue of Purdue Chicken Company, Purdue Farms. We are going to do a part two later this week, and then we will have both of them in the same week. So then that way you don't miss a beat and you get all of the information. So we're going to cover her personal business, the grapes, the wines, the book, how to be up and down times, which she co-author with Mark Vicker Hansen and our organization, which is long overdue to start addressing this issue in the fight to stop human trafficking. Stay tuned. Part two is coming up. Did you know 63% of consumers prefer to buy from purpose-driven brands and businesses that reflect their own values, beliefs, and support charitable causes? Promos for a Purpose provides business owners with ways to support worthy causes and promote their brands at the same time with its comprehensive done-for-you marketing and media program. Visit www.promosforapurpose.com for more information. Promosforapurpose.com You've been listening to Everything Home with Michelle Swinnick. Life, laughter, and the pursuit of happiness. To meet, learn from, and hire the experts and the guests, professionals, and members of the Everything Home Socially Conscious Referral Network and Marketplace, visit everythinghometalkshow.com slash episodes. And to listen, subscribe, rate, review, like, follow, comment, and share, go to www.everythinghometalkshow.com and find us on all the major listening platforms. Thanks for listening. We hope you were entertained, and we hope that you picked up some real-life, tangible takeaways from some good people doing good business and good things. Till next time, this is Everything Home, signing off. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.